Good evening. You're, oh, here's the microphone. You're very welcome. I'm very glad to see you here. Um, as most of you probably know, uh, the annual Haldane Lecture uh, is given in memory of the legendary Scottish and Oxford physiologist, John Scott Haldane, whose experiments were carried out in Charwell, the house that used to stand here where Wilson College now stands. And here his children grew up, uh, the novelist Naomi Mitchison, who I met, and the geneticist J.B.S. Haldane, who's also memorialized by this lecture, and of course by the room next door, the Haldane room. Both Haldanes, father and son, were memorable characters. John Scott Haldane was a pioneer in often dangerous experiments, some carried out on himself uh, with respirators and gas, inventor of the first gas mask and investigator into mining disasters from toxic gases. His son, J.B.S. Haldane, was famous for his work on population genetics and evolution, his bold experiments and his radical views as a Marxist, atheist, and humanist. It's a fine and it's a relatively recent Wolfson tradition to have a lecture uh, in memory of the Haldanes. And the lecture has been given by some very distinguished speakers, including, in my time here, Stephen Pinker, Tony Hoare, Martin Evans, V.S. Ramachandran, Ian Chalmers, Chris Stringer, Paul Nurse, and for our 50th anniversary, Tim Berners-Lee. When we invited uh, Professor Raymond Pierre Humbert to give the Haldane Lecture this year, we knew that we were inviting uh, one of the world's most eminent and influential climate scientists, holder of the Halley Professorship of Physics at Oxford since, since July 2015, fellow of the American Geophysical Union and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, Chevalier de l'Ordre des Palmes Académiques, and recipient of many other honors and awards. We knew that his work, which involves theoretical and computation investigations concerning the climate dynamics of exoplanets and of the ancient Earth, crosses the boundaries between geology, geochemistry, atmospheric science, and climate and ocean physics. We knew that it has shaped world thinking on these burning topics for many decades. And we noted also with interest that in addition to his enormously important scientific research, he's a committed hiker, reader of Swedish literature, accordion player, and lover of Nordic and Irish folk music. And I was particularly delighted that in his acceptance of the college's invitation, he told us that J.B.S. Haldane was one of his scientific heroes to say nothing, I quote, of his venture into children's literature and his sister's dabbling in breeding guinea pigs. I think that's the first time that J.B.S. Haldane's children's book, My Friend Mr. Leakey, has been alluded to by our Haldane lecturers. But what we didn't know when we invited him, was, but, was that by the time he would be giving this lecture, Raymond Pierre Humbert would be at the forefront of the scientific battle that must now be joined against the destructive, alarming, ignorant, and coercive policies in this area, as in every other, of the new President of the United States and his advisors. Professor Pierre Humbert is one of the members of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientist Board who took the decision last month to reset the doomsday clock to three minutes to midnight in the light of the new U.S. government's climate change denial in order to make the clear statement that the world situation is highly threatening to humanity and that, I quote, decisive action to reduce the danger posed by nuclear weapons and climate change is urgently required. He's a leader among scientists who maintain that climate change makes stringent demands 
on our thinking about the future. He tells us that the next 200 years is a crucial time for humanity and that it's not too late for us to shape those 200 years if we are, in his words, given the chance to be our best selves. He would be very welcome as a distinguished speaker here under any circumstances, but in the current context, he could not be more welcome. Uh, He's going to speak to us today um, on old earth, on getting excited about the boring billion, and I think it will be just the opposite of boring, so please make him very welcome. Thank you very much for that wonderful introduction, Hermione. I um, can't resist starting off with uh, a little bit about uh, one of the interests that Haldane and I, JBS Haldane and I, have, have in common other than population genetics. Uh, his, um, that, uh, the way J. Haldane, in fact, got interested in population genetics initially uh, was, was through his, his sister, who had a whole barn full of guinea pigs who she raised. And in fact, although their first, uh, their first paper that they wrote, the paper they wrote together was actually on mice, uh, the, a lot of the early thinking about genetics and uh, population genetics, I'm sure, uh, came from watching what the production of different kinds of guinea pigs were. These are not his guinea pigs. It's my rendition of what they might have looked like. Uh, Haldane did not have the patience to continue with guinea pigs uh, prolific as they are. The moths, his work on the peppered moth, uh, was, was really one of the real breakthroughs in, in uh, mathematical population genetics. But his contemporary and, and, uh, and colleague, well, I see, uh, the connection with me, I, we, at various times in my life, I have had guinea pigs too and raised guinea pigs. Those are two of ours, Mouton de Rene and Saitapirthi. Uh, Sewell Wright, his colleague Sewell Wright, uh, took a, carried the torch on, on guinea pigs. Guinea pigs were his main, uh, his main way of probing population genetics. And Sewell writes, these are Sewell's actual guinea pigs from his famous study on inbreeding and, and hybridization. And, and there is a connection here with these little creatures because in, 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 a, in a real sense, the, this talk is really about how we came to have such wonderful little creatures uh, on, on, on Earth and what it would take for another planet to have uh, had to have similarly complex metazoans. Uh, so, uh, so before we get back to the guinea pigs, we have to go all the way back and think about stars and, and what determines the lifetime of biospheres. Then I'll walk you through the early Earth and some of the things that could bring you from the abiotic early Earth uh, into the critical stages where, where multicellular life uh, animals uh, evolved. Uh, so. If we start with stars, uh, situate ourselves in the star, because the star provides our home, it provides our home in space. The, uh, uh, the, uh, we can look at, at the population of stars in the galaxy uh, in this classic kind of diagram called the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. Uh, each dot is a star, uh, not in the whole galaxy, but in, in uh, more or less in our neighborhood of the galaxy. It's from a a catalog of fairly nearby nearby stars. On this axis of the graph, uh, you have um, you have uh, the temperature of the star. Very hot stars here, which are quite bluish white, and very cool stars here, about 3,000 degrees Kelvin, which are reddish. Uh, on this axis, you have essentially the power output of the star. If a star came with a wattage stamped on it like a light bulb, this would be the wattage. Except the unit is is not in watts. The unit is in 
the, the power output of the sun, which is set at one here. So the, the sun is is the sun is right about is right about in here. And, and uh, when Hertzsprung and Russell first plotted the stars on the, on a diagram like this, they found the remarkable thing. Those other some blobs there, and there's a little bit of stuff down here. Almost all stars lined up along this curve, uh, which is called the main sequence. Uh, and uh, and the main sequence, in fact corresponds to uh, stars that get their energy by fusing, or we sometimes say burning, hydrogen into hydrogen into helium. Uh, this is a very simple representation, simplified representation of a proton process, which takes four protons, which is basically a hydrogen nucleus, and then, and then uh, fuses them into a helium nucleus and releases energy. Uh, the, this, ener this is a very energetic reaction. Uh, it, you release, uh, for each kilogram of hydrogen, you, re you release uh, 6.4 times 10 to the 14th joules of energy. But to put that in perspective, uh, that's, that's, if you thought of that in terms of caloric content, that's about 10 million times as caloric as chocolate. So, uh, so, uh, so one kilogram of hydrogen is, is, is like eating uh, uh, ten million uh, kilograms of chocolate, which even I don't think I could do uh, in a in a lifetime. Uh, so, uh, so what happens eventually? Uh, eventually, the hydrogen in the star is used up, uh, and uh, and then the star goes through evolutions in its life cycle, and those are very dramatic uh, evolutions. So here is the sun. There is where the sun is right now. Uh, there in the main sequence in the yellow stars, the G stars. Uh, when the sun uh, uses up uh, its hydrogen, in fact, it doesn't get to use up all of its hydrogen because it can't mix in all of its fuel to the part where the hydrogen can fuse. But when it uses all the hydrogen that a star like the sun can, can use, uh, then it leaves the main sequence, and it goes into very perilous places. So when you leave the main sequence, uh, it gets bigger. It gets 100 times bigger, and this is only 10 times bigger than the sun, than, than my representation there, because I didn't have room on the screen. The, the, the star gets 100 times bigger, which means the, the, the surface of the sun will be somewhere around the orbit of Venus. So it won't actually engulf the Earth, it will engulf Venus. Uh, but what's even more fatal is as you go along this path off the main sequence evolving into a red giant star, it gets uh, 100 times more luminous. Uh, which is uh, is the mother of all global global warmings that that will not only uh, uh, make the earth uninhabitable it's it's enough to to uh, essentially vaporize the the crust of the crust of the earth and there are people thinking about uh, what a planet looks like after it goes through this evolution because uh, with all the planets we can observe elsewhere in the universe it's likely sometime or other we'll see this process uh, in its early in its early stages it hasn't been done yet but we'd like to know what it's like. But for us, this certainly will be the ultimate uh, uh, catastrophe for, for life on Earth. But how long does it actually take? The, um, uh, so so this, is, this is time from the beginning, from the age of the sun. And the age of the Earth is not really so different from the age of the sun. Planets form very quickly and very early in the lifetime, in the lifetime of stars. And so uh, we're roughly four billion years into the, into the age of the sun. Uh, and uh, so this is now. Uh, and so for a G star, for a star like the sun, of the mass of the sun, we leave the main sequence in about another, roughly another five billion years. So we're about halfway through the main sequence lifetime uh, of, the, uh, of the sun. And then really, unless we manage to uh, colonize the galaxy 
or, or move out into space somewhere. Uh, that's, that's really the end for, for life, certainly the end for life on Earth. Uh, and, um, uh, the, uh, and so you go here, you, you have a helium flash when you first start fusing some helium, which the, where the, the sun actually gets a thousand times brighter, then it sort of settles down into this subgiant, red giant stage, and other things happen in the later stage of evolution. But this is basically where things end. And uh, once they start ending, they end very quickly. This is something like 10 million years or less in this, in this ramp up here, where, where you just fry things, fry things completely. But, uh, but that's over-optimistic. That's over-optimistic because, in fact, long before, uh, long before the sun runs out of its main sequence lifetime, because stars, all main sequence stars, get gradually brighter over time, maybe about 30% brighter over, over uh, 4 billion years or so, because all main sequence stars get gradually brighter over, over time, at some point you cross the threshold uh, where, uh, where uh, the, uh, the oceans evaporate into the atmosphere creating enough extra greenhouse gas, because water vapor is a greenhouse gas, creating enough extra greenhouse effect to cause more and more of the oceans to go into the atmosphere. And this process doesn't terminate until essentially all of your oceans are evaporated into the atmosphere, at which point the hydrogen and oxygen break up. You lose the hydrogen to space. You have irreversible water loss. Uh, and so even though uh, a, a, a few per, uh, a 10% increase in the brightness of the sun would not cause all that much warming uh, if you didn't have the feedback from the oceans, uh, then um, the, the, the feedback from the oceans actually makes that 10% a life, life or death uh, matter. Now, if we, if we actually, if humanity manages to, to uh, survive that long, if humanity manages to survive that long, and this is about you know, 500 million years from now, so you don't lose too much sleep over this right away. We've got other things to get through first. But... Um, but if humanity manages to survive that long, it, would not, it will be well within our... Well, I should say, if humanity and technological civilization survive that long, it will be well within our capability to build uh, sun shields that will reflect back 5% of the solar energy uh, and, uh, and save us from the runaway greenhouse, in which case we've bought another 4 billion years of habitability of Earth. Maybe this is the destiny of human life. With another 4 billion years... Uh, if we have the wisdom to survive that, we can colonize the, gra the, the galaxy. And maybe we are the only keepers of the flame for intelligent life or complex life of any sort, which is one of the bottom lines of this talk, uh, for, uh, for all we know. Uh, maybe that is our destiny, but we have to get through the next 100 or 200 years first uh, without, uh, without uh, collapsing civilization uh, in, a, in a more or less irreversible way. But so th this, this, is, this is a very important um, threshold that, in fact, uh, although 500 uh, million years sounds like a long time, in the context of the history of the Earth, uh, it's a rather short time. In the context of evolution of life, it's a very short time. Uh, and so, uh, and so uh, this is an important number that we will put together with the issue of the boring billion years and why it was a billion not, and not a half billion, and what would have happened if it were two billion instead. We'll get back to that. So here is the, uh, this, here I'll, fo I'll, I'll focus in on the part of the story that this talk is, is, involved, is involved with. Uh, so here is, um, here is the timeline of the history of the Earth. 
the earth was, was formed, uh, the earth uh, was consolidated, it cooled down, it was fully assembled somewhere around here about four billion, a little more than four billion years ago. So this is time, the time goes forwards. Uh, and uh, so this is, uh, out here is now. Uh, this is about 500 million years ago here, uh, and that's four billion years ago. So this is time in, in, uh, time in millions of years. Uh, and um, uh, the, um, and along this, time, along this timeline, we have um, a period called the Archean, back here. And life occurred, life appeared, appeared on Earth incredibly early, practically as soon as the crust cooled down enough to not sterilize everything. Now, we don't have fossils. This is the bacterial life, uh, the bacterial-like life that was believed to exist early on. We don't actually have, have rock fossils indicating the existence of this sort of life, but life produces a particular chemical signature in, in carbon uh, that is believed to not be created in any other way than, than by certain forms of life. And so we have evidence from rocks going, uh, going uh, 3.8 billion years back uh, that, that life had evolved, and a fairly complex life, chemically speaking, uh, had, 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 ev had evolved. And then it ticked along, it ticked along for, uh, you know, for until about 2.5 billion years ago, and, uh, and then the, there was a big innovation in that, um, in, in that uh, the kinds of, of, of photosynthesis that create oxygen evolved. Okay, now, th some people say there were some indications that, that uh, maybe, uh, maybe uh, oxygenic photosynthesis uh, had evolved earlier and something else was holding back the rise of oxygen. But uh, that, uh, it, I don't think that's believed anymore that turned out to be uh, contamination of various drill cores uh, by modern products and, and not indicative of the kind of chemical fossils left behind by, by blue-green algae. Uh, I should say that, that, uh, that uh, photosynthesis, harvesting the energy of sunlight, uh, does not have to produce oxygen. In fact, there are two major biochemical pathways, photosystem A and photosystem B, which uh, still exist today in, in purple and green sulfur bacteria, which harvest light and, uh, and use that to make organic carbon. But it, they, they do not, are not able to tap into sort of water uh, as, as a source of energy uh, when combined with light, and they do not produce oxygen. Uh, and, and they're very inefficient. They're very inefficient in terms of the amount of energy they can produce uh, from each uh, sugar molecule, each glucose molecule, that is, that is harvested. But then somehow uh, photosystem A and photosystem B got together in the same bacteria. We had cyanobacteria, which could suddenly essentially split water. They, 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 they essentially, essentially photolyze water, split water, uh, and uh, by a very complicated uh, enzymatic process, uh, and, um, uh, and, and give, rise to, give rise to oxygen. Now, we know, uh, we know with very high degree of confidence that there was a rise in oxygen about two and a half billion years ago through isotopes of uh, different kinds of sulfur, sulfur chemistry, that are preserved in the rock record. So, so it was very, it was very, it's very clear the oxygen was very, very low in the atmosphere uh, early on, and then you got this great oxidation, uh, oxygenation event, and the oxygen went up, uh, but the threshold for shutting off this special sulfur uh, isotope signature of the presence of oxygen is, is quite low. Oxygen 
so, um, so we don't really know much, we don't have really good evidence for how much oxygen there was uh, in this period. But roughly speaking, the, the, pro, uh, the Proterozoic period begins approximately at the time uh, when oxygen was first became present in the atmosphere, and that probably coincided with the evolution, uh, with the evolution of cyanobacteria, oxygenic, oxygenic photosynthesis. Okay, and now uh, uh, let me. Now some other things are on this are on this on this graph. Uh, I have these bars here, which represent glaciations. So the short bars represent normal glaciations, like we had during the last ice age, when there was a lot of ice on Earth, uh, but it didn't really reach into the tropics. These long bars represent uh, uh, snowball glaciations, in which ice. Uh, reached deep into the tropics and maybe, uh, and I think most likely, corresponded to states where the, the earth was completely frozen over, the oceans were completely frozen over. These are a kind of, of glaciation that has not been seen in the last uh, 500 million years. Uh, but at the very beginning, right, right when, the, uh, right when uh, this great oxygenation event happened, uh, there was uh, a, major, uh, a major glaciation, a snowball glaciation, called the Makinini glaciation. There was a minor glaciation earlier on, the Pongola and a few other minor glaciations, but, uh, but uh, the, the Proterozoic began with a bang with, with, the, uh, with, the Mac, with a, a, a snowball glaciation, and there is circumstantial evidence that the way that, uh, that uh, cyanobacteria and oxygenation changed the atmospheric chemistry Triggered this glaciation. So it's the opposite of Gaia. It's it's the anti-Gaia. It's it's the opposite of the Gaia hypothesis. Rather than life uh, actually creating an environment that was more favorable for itself, in the quest for energy, it completely destroyed the environment, uh, and and uh, and uh, could have wiped itself out, but it didn't. Somehow things reorganized uh, to make use of that energy. It wasn't especially good for what was there before necessarily, uh, but uh, life made it through this crisis. And that's one of the big questions of coevolution of life and physical climate. Uh, how does life actually make it through crises that actually radically change the environment? In some ways, in a somewhat smaller way, we're doing that right now with burning fossil fuels. Okay, but and then and so you had uh, you had this major glaciation, uh, and then for about a billion years in here, no major glaciations, nothing much happening. Uh, that's what we sometimes call the boring billion. And then at the end, you had a period called the Cryogenian where there were two global glaciations, two snowball glaciations, the Sturdian and the Maranoan. You come out of that, then uh, right after the, somewhat after the, the Maranoan glaciation, uh, the, uh, there was a smaller glaciation, then the first multicellular life appeared. Uh, now, there, what else is on here? Uh, the, uh, the, uh, these dots represent uh, isotopes of carbon. Car carbon comes in two stable flavors, a light one uh, and, and a heavy one. Life prefers the, the lighter one. So, so the, the, uh, the ratio of the heavy to the light carbon uh, in, uh, it, that's preserved in limestones, essentially, in carbonates, uh, is, a, is some kind of indicator of stuff going on with the carbon cycle. And I'll get back to just exactly what may have been going on with the carbon cycle. So you can see that uh, the, the, the indication is nothing really dramatic is happening with the carbon cycle for a lot of the Archean. You get to um, this time when cyanobacteria are coming in. Things start to go wild, 
you have a snowball glaciation. Things are quite wild for a while, and then they settle down. So not only is there no glaciation during the boring billion, there's no indication that anything really major is happening with the, with the carbon cycle. Then you get to the cryogenian. You get to the end of the Proterozoic. Things go haywire. Uh, you have two major glaciations. You come out, and you have multicellular life. Now, midway through this period, uh, a new kind of cell emerges, the, uh, evolves, the eukaryotic cell. I'll say a lot more about the difference between eukaryotic cells and bacteria, prokaryotic cells, and their close cousins, the, the, the archaea. Uh, again, there, there used to be some indications thought that there were, that there were uh, eukaryotic cells already back here. That, again, turned out to be drill core contamination. So our best evidence for when eukaryotes evolved it comes from when Bangiomorpha, a particular kind of, of, uh, of large algae, appear, actually appears in the fossil record, which was right about here, about uh, midway or early on in the, in the boring billion. They didn't do very much until somewhere around here. Then they start to diversify. Things go haywire. Uh, no multicellular life, so far as we know. You go through these snowball glaciations. You come out with the Ediacarans, which are not the, uh, the famous uh, uh, Cambrian explosion forms of life, the Burgess shale life. But you get the Ediacarans, and, and just a blink of an eye later, you do get the, the Cambrian explosion, which laid down all the, essentially all the major body types, body forms that we're all descended from, and the rest was just history. Okay. But now, uh, to put that story together with the stars, this was a real squeaker. We just barely made it, because if you look at this runaway, this runaway greenhouse threshold here, if I, I, if I squeeze down that, that graph of the history of the Earth uh, leading down to, the, uh, to where the first multicellular life came in, uh, we, this actually, where the guinea pig edge ends here, that's, that's pretty much today, as, as, I, as I put it in here. So there, there's about uh, 500 and some 580 million years of Earth history squeezed into the Phanerozoic. When I go and, and look at formations, I think the Phanerozoic, it's what you scrape away to get to the interesting stuff. It's just the, the, you know, the easy 580 million years of Earth. Uh, but anyway, this is roughly now here. And so we're just right up against the edge of where the biosphere, uh, the biosphere disappears, where, where the biosphere gets fried in the absence of intelligent manipulation uh, of our climate, as opposed to unintelligent manipulation of our climate, which is what we're doing right now. Okay, and, um, and so if the boring billion, actually there were two crises here, there were two sort of delays that could have pushed us past this habitability threshold. Uh, one is, I mean, it took a, a long, long time for oxygenic photosynthesis to evolve, or at least for oxygen to start accumulating. So if that had been twice as long, uh, then we would have run up against, against it. Um, but at least we know with pretty much confidence what the trigger was for this first stage, and we can make estimates maybe of what, how long that might take around stars elsewhere in the universe. But this second stage, this billion years when, uh, this billion years, uh, when even after the emergence of eukaryotes, nothing much seemed to be going on, and then suddenly a whole lot of stuff happens, why a billion? Were we unlucky? Could that have taken much, a much shorter time? Or were we extraordinarily lucky that it only took a billion years to do that? Maybe that commonly doesn't, maybe that doesn't happen anywhere else in the universe, or it's extremely impro improbable. And, you know, we can, uh, we can uh, believe in highly improbable things because otherwise we wouldn't be here to talk about them. That's called the anthropic principle. Uh, but, uh, 
but it, this, is a, uh, this is a really, criti a really critical thing. Uh, why a billion? Could it have been two billion? Because if it had been two billion, then just about the time when, when, uh, uh, when multicellular life was getting started, that's when the Earth's habitability would, would end, and we would have just missed our, missed our window alt altogether. So it's extremely important to understand what was going on in the Proterozoic. Okay, now I want to point out, in terms of thinking about other stars, uh, life, life elsewhere in the universe, the situation is, is much more congenial around uh, cool red stars, main-sequence stars that are lower mass than the sun, M-dwarf stars, red dwarf stars. Uh, they can last a trillion years, and they age very, very slowly. Uh, and so in some ways... Uh, uh, M dwarf stars provide a much more congenial habitat for life to emerge. And we do know that uh, planets are extremely common around M dwarf stars. But M dwarf stars have a problem as real estate that, uh, unlike the sun, they produce a, a huge amount of ultra, extremely energetic ultraviolet and X-rays relative to the amount of sunlight, net energy they produce. So if you have a planet in an orbit that's getting enough sunlight, starlight, to be warm enough for liquid water, it's also getting blasted with X-rays and extreme ultraviolet, which tends to uh, erode your atmosphere and ocean. So uh, uh, in the next 10 years or so, we will start to have a catalog of whether any planets with a rocky surface around M-dwarf stars have any atmosphere left. And this will be the major breakthrough in the question of whether we are alone in the universe. Because I think, I think if it turns out that M-dwarf star planets can retain atmospheres without, having, without being mostly gas balls, then it's almost certain that life, and even, even complex life, is common in the universe. Because M-dwarf stars are the most, kind, most common in the universe. But uh, there is a real risk that uh, M-stars... Uh, just uh, blast away planetary atmospheres and, uh, and you, you lose the possibility of ever making them uh, habitable. That's something we will know the answer to in the next uh, 10 years, I, I would say. So, um, but I'm not going to talk about the exoplanets here. I'm going to talk about the Earth. So let's talk about the various players that are operating during the, uh, uh, that are operating during the Proterozoic. And first, the abiotic players. You have atmospheric carbon dioxide, which connects the carbon cycle uh, to climate, because carbon dioxide is the main temperature regulator of the atmosphere. You have this process called silicate weathering, which reacts silicate rocks like feldspar with, uh, with carbon dioxide dissolved in water and makes carbonates, essentially limestone. Uh, and that's a temperature-dependent process, and in the long term, that's the main temperature regulation mechanism uh, for, for the Earth and other Earth-like planets. And then you have the supercontinent cycle, continental drift. Every so often, continents all get bunched up in one place. Uh, and that affects the silicate weathering and the amount of stuff you wash out of continental area into the ocean, especially if you get a supercontinent, uh, if you get a supercontinent that's bunched up in the tropics. So these are all things that would be going on even if there, uh, even if there weren't life. Um, so th this is uh, this is the this is the the silicate weathering cycle. This is how the deep carbon cycle works on Earth. Uh, volcanoes put out carbon dioxide uh, from the interior of the Earth. They put it out at a rate of about 12 gigatons of carbon every 200 years. I put it in this form uh, just to give you an idea of of how much we have disrupted the carbon cycle by burning fossil fuels. At the rate we're burning fossil fuels, we put out something like 5,000 gigatons of carbon. 
uh, every 200 years. And it could go even more if, if people learn how to tap uh, exotic fossil fuels in the seafloor, gas hydrates. So, so we're a force bigger than nature, bigger than a geological force. Now, of course, we can't keep on doing that for very long before the fossil fuels are, are, are run out, but, but we can do it for 200 years uh, without running out of fossil fuels. So this is a, a really uh, huge, this is a kind of disruption of the carbon cycle that probably has not happened since the evolution of photosynthesis. We are just doing a, an outrageous thing to the planet. Anyway, so the carbon dioxide reacts with with uh, silicate rocks. This is not actually a common rock. This thing called wallastonite is actually feldspars, but I, I, it's a more complicated chemical formula. Anyway, you react carbon dioxide in the presence of water with silicate rocks uh, that washes into the ocean, gets deposited on the ocean floor. But that reaction can also take place in the seafloor itself. And the, and the competition between weathering on continents and weathering on the seafloor is one of the possible uh, candidates for things that modulate uh, the, what's going on during the boring billion as we age into the, into the Proterozoic. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, that, that carbon winds that emitted by volcanoes uh, gets taken up, winds up in the seafloor, and then subduction, plate tectonic subduction, brings, sucks it down into the earth where basically it's like a cement kiln. It cooks it back out, and it appears back as carbon dioxide. And that's a temperature-dependent cycle, which tends to regulate the temperature of the earth so that you always have liquid water near the surface, unless something sudden happens to make that process break, break down. So that's always going on in the background, regardless of what life, what life is doing. Then here's just an example, a, a very circumstantial bit of evidence about what one of the players that terminated the boring billion and brought out the snowball glaciations of the cryogenian at the end of the boring billion. Uh, this is from uh, 1.1 million years ago down to 780 million years ago, roughly the time uh, of the first snowball glaciation. Uh, the, the supercontinent called Rodinia was being assembled at that time. Uh, and supercontinents don't happen all that often. We, uh, and uh, there, was there may have been one more supercontinent uh, earlier in the, in the uh, Proterozoic, but we don't really know the paleogeography going back uh, further than this all that, all that well. But so certainly uh, it's suggestive that uh, we did have a supercontinent forming, um, being assembled uh, during this period when so much else is starting to happen. Uh, and I'll give some physical mechanisms for how that might have been playing. Now, once, uh, once life comes in, and I'm only going to talk about the effect of life after cyanobacteria make their appearance. I'm not going to talk about the Archean. There, there is a very interesting story there, too. And so the players there, once, once, uh, once uh, cyanobacteria come in, you have organic carbon burial, uh, which, uh, which, it connect, which produces atmospheric uh, oxygen, but it also draws down atmospheric CO2 uh, if, if it happens fast enough. If you have a player of oxygen in the ocean, not just in the form of free oxygen, O2, but also in the form of sulfate. And then you have the sulfur and iron cycle, which is important as both a sink and a transporter of oxygen. But this is the, the basic organic carbon uh, role in the carbon cycle. See, it, it, even after cyanobacteria evolved, that doesn't actually produce net oxygen if the cyanobacteria just get eaten up right where they're producing oxygen. Uh, you have to actually bury some of that organic carbon in the sediments 
without, uh, without anything eating it up and reoxidizing it back into CO2. That allows you to actually produce net amounts of, net amounts of oxygen. So photosynthesis takes a greenhouse gas CO2, it produces oxygen, which is a ter terrific source of energy, uh, and, then it, and then it splits off the sea and buries it. So it actually turns a greenhouse uh, gas CO2 into something that's not a greenhouse gas. And so if this happens too fast for the silicate weathering cycle to keep up, uh, it can actually lead to a glaciation. And this is my favored uh, mechanism for the cause of those glaciations uh, early, early in, the, uh, in the Proterozoic, at the beginning of the Proterozoic. But, uh, but that doesn't mean that, that, uh, that you oxygenate the ocean. In fact, it's believed that it took a long, long time before the oceans uh, had more than whiffs of oxygen near the surface. Uh, instead, you can have a, a very different uh, oxygen chemistry in the ocean because the oxygen produced into the atmosphere by this organic carbon burial uh, reacts with fool's gold, pyrite, FES2, uh, and that produces sulfate, SO4 uh, double minus ion. And then there are, uh, bacteria are incredibly clever at, at all sorts of metabolisms. There are sulfate-reducing bacteria, and this is a picture of an actual sulfate-reducing bacterial colony that take, the, uh, take away the oxygen in the sulfate uh, and use it to make organic carbon, which is the stuff of their life. They produce stinky hydrogen sulfide, which is toxic, uh, and, uh, uh, and, um, and, then they, uh, and then out of the organic carbon that they oxidize, they produce uh, bicarbonate back again. Which, which it then affects the atmospheric CO2. So this is called the sulfitic, sulfitic ocean, and this is believed to be the, the state of the ocean uh, early, early on in the Proterozoic. It's sometimes called the Canfield, Canfield Ocean, after Don Canfield, who, who did some of the pioneering work on this. And then uh, if you have, um, if you have uh, hydrogen sulfide uh, in, in, the, in the ocean, uh, that can actually react with, uh, with hematite, Fe2O3, an iron compound, uh, and use up one oxygen and, and deposit pyrite back in the sediment. So actually, you can, your sink, you can close the carbon cycle without burying organic carbon. Instead, uh, you can bury pyrite instead. So, you don't, uh, so, so that, that will enter into our interpretation of the carbon, carbon isotopes. But all, all of this is going on um, in the in the in the pro, in the Proterozoic. Uh, th this uh, this reaction with Fe2O3 with hematite consumes one oxygen, but the photosynthesis produced 15 oxygens. So it, you still can produce a net amount of oxygen in, in the system while burying uh, while burying uh, uh, pyrite rather than organic carbon. Uh, so that is very important in interpreting the sedimentary record of what's going on. So this is the story of why, uh, of why uh, carbon-13 ratios actually uh, tell you something about the amount of organic carbon burial. So, so organic carbon burial, uh, oh, sorry, uh, uh, inorganic carbon comes out of volcanoes with a certain value, delta naught in the units we, we, uh, we use to measure these uh, carbon-13 ratios of minus 6 per 1,000. Um, and, um, and then that gets separated by life, by photosynthetic life and chemo and, uh, of both sorts uh, into light carbon. Light prefers the light carbon. So light carbon gets buried as organic carbon and, um, and leaving behind heavier carbon that gets buried, uh, buried as carbonate rocks, as limestone. 
So I won't go through the math here because I'm running a little bit short on time. But, uh, but basically, whenever, uh, when, when you have organic carbon burial, the limestone that's left behind should have a positive delta C13 value. So going back to this, uh, to this, this graph here, we can see that uh, um, zero here corresponds, well, actually minus six would correspond to no organic carbon burial. Uh, and, um, and so you, you have this huge increase in organic carbon burial at the beginning of the Proterozoic, but a big excursion, so positive and negative, which basically indicate huge changes in the organic carbon burial, which could be due to changes in biological productivity or changes in the, uh, changes in the um, re proportion that gets buried rather than just eaten up right where it's produced. Then again, carbon cycle stasis uh, in this boring billion and carbon cycle perturbations. Again, both negative excursions and positive excursions. And to zoom in on this cryogenium when so much stuff is happening that leads to the modern world of the Phanerozoic, uh, like, this, this is just a, a zoom in of a paper by Bruni et al., um, this, is t this, this now is depth, the way real geologists like to display time. Uh, this is uh, a snowball glaciation right up here. Th let's look, just look at this curve here. This is the carbon isotope, uh, uh, this is the carbon isotope uh, measure, uh, delta C13. It, it's negative, and it goes down to about minus 8 per mil in the units we like to use uh, over here. Uh, uh, before the snowball glaciation, uh, but then it turns around uh, and becomes positive, indicating enhanced carbon, en enhanced uh, organic carbon burial. And then you get the snowball glaciation, and that destroys the record, uh, uh, the, the record because the set uh, of, of what's going on in there. And interesting things are happening in this post-snowball. But anyway, there, there is very definitely a major disruption in the, in the carbon cycle right before the, the end of the boring the end of the boring billion we don't see carbon isotope excursions anything like this uh, on a on a global scale uh, in the world of the Phanerozoic so something very different was happening in, in the in the proto in the Proterozoic okay now oxygenation to recap oxygenation requires high biological productivity but it also requires organic carbon burial and or, and productivity uh, is is limited by energy. But oxygenic photosynthesis pretty much takes care of the energy supply. You can, there's so much solar energy, uh, and it's tapped so efficiently by oxygenic photosynthesis. Energy probably isn't very limiting once you have cyanobacteria evolved, which was well before the end of the boring billion. But then there are nutrients. Life absolutely needs uh, nutrients, and especially uh, nitrogen and phosphorus. So nitrogen and phosphorus are both essential building blocks for the stuff of life. Uh, nitrogen uh, is biologically available not as N2, the nitrogen in the atmosphere, but as ammonium and as nitrate. Nitrogen is used in protein, DNA, RNA, uh, and um, nitrogen fixation, which turns biologically unavailable N2 into ammonium, uh, all, that starts very early on. It's a very ancient metabolism. So basically, early bacteria in our, uh, learned how to split the nitrogen in the air and make biologically available nitrogen forms for themselves and uh, as a byproduct for anything else uh, out there in, that, uh, in, the, in the biosphere. Uh, this also has possibilities to affect the mass, uh, mass of the atmosphere, which has consequences for climate, because if we just turned atmospheric nitrogen into ammonium and nitrate and had no way of getting it back, uh, and if this disappeared into the interior of the Earth, you would actually be drawing down atmospheric nitrogen and changing the amount of nitrogen. 
Uh, and um, the, uh, now, uh, early on when there's no oxygen, probably the nitrogen was, uh, was mostly biologically available in the form of ammonium. Once you have oxygen, you have the possibility of oxidizing this into nitrate, which is another biologically available form of, uh, form of, form of nitrogen. And then you have the phosphorus cycle. So, so nitrogen comes from the air. Once you learn nitrogen fixation, you can get all the nitrogen you want uh, as long as you've got light. Uh, uh, sorry, no, you get all the nitrogen that you want as, as long as you've got a source, mm -hmm. source of the air. Uh, this is not a photosynthetic reaction. Uh, uh, you do need light to provide the energy uh, in the ecosystem, but, but this, this which, uh, it does take a lot of energy, but you indirectly get that from photosynthetic organisms which make organic carbon for you, sorry, which, which make other organic carbon for you that can be tapped with oxygen to make energy. Okay. Um, this only happens in bacteria. The, the, the uh, nitrogen-fixing plants like legumes have symbiotic bacteria that live in root nodules. So, uh, so we live off of, we are the guests of nitrogen-fixing bacteria. Uh, but the phosphorus, whereas nitrogen comes from air, phosphorus comes from rocks. And it's much harder to get things out of rocks than it is to get things out of air. Phosphorus is absolutely critical. It's the, it's the key backbone uh, of the energy transporting molecule uh, adenosine triphosphate, ATP. But it's also key in genetics. You need both nitrogen and phosphorus to make DNA and RNA. Night life can only make use of phosphate. The ultimate source of phosphate is very slow weathering of appetite, which only really happens on land. Uh, it gets the phosphate you release in the ocean gets bound up with iron. So, so, so the weathering of, on land uh, and the phosphate supply is a critical factor in the biological productivity, productivity that has the potential to bury, uh, to bury um, uh, organic carbon. Then there's eukaryotic evolution, uh, and that's facilitated by oxygen, uh, by ocean oxygen, but it also facilitates oxygenation through organic carbon burial because large cells can sink fast before they can decompose. But you have to remember that burying organic carbon typically buries nutrients with it too. So you have to have enough supply of phosphate that you can afford to lose your phosphate into the sediments. So prokaryotes are simple little, little guys. Uh, they're just a bag of DNA and enzymes with a rigid cell wall. Um, uh, and um, archaea, uh, which are a separate branch of life, are very similar in their interior structure, but they have a completely different membrane chemistry and a very distinct genome. Um, uh, but uh, eukaryotic cells, they're like little animals. They have all sorts of organelles and complex internal structure. They can move. They have a, a, a cell membrane that can, uh, that's pliable and that can engulf things from outside. And one of the important organelles is the mitochondrion. People of my generation first learned about mitochondria through, uh, uh, first learned about mitochondria through, oh, the, the, this, uh, the book didn't show up. The wrinkle in time is supposed to be here. Uh, the, uh, the, um, uh, the wonderful book by Madeleine L'Engle uh, in which, uh, in which uh, Charles Wallace's mitochondria are being, uh, are being attacked by, uh, uh, are being attacked uh, by the forces of evil uh, uh, it was a wonderful plot, uh, plot line. But eukaryotes are large and mobile. They need a whole lot of oxygen to produce energy. And uh, they need a transport mechanism for oxygen and other metabolic requirements rather than just diffusion. And mitochondria facilitate oxygen utilization not by actually doing biochemistry that bacteria and archaea don't do. They don't do anything different, uh, but they do it faster and better because they have this folded up membrane inside which provides much more surface area 
uh, for, uh, to make the whole reaction go, reactions go. Uh, and they also, um, they, they also protect the cells fr cell from the free radicals that are produced by the utilization of oxygen for respiration. Now, where do mito how, did, how did cells get mitochondria? Well, uh, the original picture, the endosymbiosis picture, was that, uh, was that uh, an, ancient, uh, an ancient eukaryote without uh, any internal organelles and, and any mitochondria uh, ate a proteobacter, and we know it's a proteobacter from genetics, and then, and then gave rise to eukaryotes. But uh, a modern uh, genetic uh, analysis uh, and ends, uh, indicates that actually it didn't happen that way. There were no primal eukaryotes without mitochondria, that, uh, that it was actually an archaea, this other branch of life, the particular crenarchaeota that ate a proteobacter somehow, uh, and, uh, and then coexisted with it, and, um, and then that proteobacter evolved into mitochondria later on. So, so we, now, we now have the, uh, the, uh, the eocyte hypothesis that the tree of life looks like this, where we're close cousins to the, uh, to the, uh, to the archaea rather than bacteria, except at some point we ate a proteobacter and didn't agree with us uh, and couldn't be digested and, and it found a way to coexist. So, so mitochondria themselves are probably not the trigger for the end of the boring billion. So what was the trigger? So now I'm coming towards the end. Uh, the evolution of cyanobacteria and oxygenic photosynthesis uh, provide the plausible explanation for the beginning of the proterozoic, but we don't really have a good, tidy explanation, even a, 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 quanti a, a plausible quantitative explanation for the end, but we do have some ideas. Uh, circumstantial evidence, the assembly of Rodinia, uh, must have had, probably had something to do with it, perhaps through changes in the weathering of phosphorus and perhaps through triggering snowballs. Uh, the diversification of eukaryotic life um, uh, had something to do with bringing on the end, but there was a great diversification of eukaryotic life at the end, towards the end of the Proterozoic and the Neoproterozoic, but what caused it? Was it caused by an oxygen increase, or did it cause an oxygen increase, or did the two co-evolve? And what took so long before the diversification of eukaryotic life was triggered? And then we also have snowball glaciations. These preceded the appearance of the first multicellular life, uh, but the causal mechanism linking, if any, linking snowball glaciations to the Ediacaran multicellular fauna is unknown. Uh, we also know that there was massive carbon cycle disruption right before the end of the boring billion. And uh, there was something going on with phosphate because there was very little phosphate burial in the sediments uh, before the snowball great glaciations. But as we go into the, the Phanerozoic, the modern world, uh, there was a great increase in phosphate burial. So one idea on the change in phosphate cycling, and I, I, I won't go through this in, in any detail, I'll condense this a bit. The, the phosphate, uh, um, it's very hard to change phosphate weathering, phosphate input, uh, if, you ha if your silicate weathering thermostat is dominated by the continental weathering, because that tends to regulate things uh, so that no matter what you try to do on land, you always get the same amount of weathering and the same amount of phosphate. However, if earlier in the Proterozoic, and in the Proterozoic, uh, more of the weathering was happening on the seafloor. That decouples the phosphate from the, 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 uh, the deep carbon cycle. So there's this interesting proposal uh, paper by Mills et al. Uh, that suggests that that was one of the things that enabled these changes in the phosphate cycle. Then there's bistability of oxygen, where you can have a stable low oxygen state and a stable high oxygen state. You need something to kick yourself from one to the other, even though the potential for the high oxygen state is always there. Uh, and, um, 
and um, there are some ideas about oxygen bistability. In the early Proterozoic, Colin Goldblatt, sitting in the front row, had, had a feedback mechanism between oxygen, ozone, and atmospheric chemistry that can give you bistability of oxygen, and that could well have, have uh, played a big role in what's going on at the beginning of the Proterozoic. In later Proterozoic, there's a very interesting idea by Loxo and Schrag that trapping that involves phosphate. You can be trapped in a low oxygen state because low oxygen inhibits the phosphate release through a kind of iron trap, a reaction with iron. So you need something to knock yourself out of it. But, uh, but uh, that doesn't account for what drove eukaryotic diversification. Uh, uh, Loxo and Schrag think the snowballs kicked us out. Uh, and, uh, but I think uh, actually the most plausible, my favorite idea for what actually triggered you, the evolution of eukaryotic predation, uh, the evolution of eukaryote was, was the evolution of eating, eukaryotic predation. But what, tri triggered, uh, what triggered the uh, onset of, of eukaryotic predation? Well, I'm not saying it's space aliens, but well, <laughs> you can watch this little one minute clip and make your own decision. It's only one minute. that was, um, even without the guinea pigs. Um, so thank you so much. Once I had uh, wrenched my mind away from the image of eating 10 million kilograms of chocolate, I began to realize that the wonder of this talk uh, um, was the way that it brought home to us uh, not only uh, the dramatic history of the billions of years of uh, Earth's history, um, but the most alarming prospects uh, for the future of the Earth, but all with a kind of intoxicating enthusiasm and energy and, and matter-of-fact specificity, which is the product of deep, deep knowledge. Uh, so I'm left in awe 
uh, and some fear. Uh, how does life make it through the crises and can we? Uh, but also with a huge sense of possibility uh, and a deeply rewarding uh, sense of having had my eyes opened as wide as possible. Um, it's indeed science uh, that we can get excited about. Um, and we're all extremely grateful to you for, for explaining it to us. Before you express your thanks, I just want to ask you if you can let us um, le leave the hall before you do so that I can take Professor Pierre Humbert to a well-deserved drink. And thank you so much for everything you've done. Thank you.